Thank you, guys. Uh, today we begin a new series just for three weeks, and we're going to be studying the book of James. I'm calling it Authenticity because that seems to be the central theme or the message that James is trying to get across is how to be authentic as a Christian, or rather how to authenticate that you are a Christian. And so uh, I want to do just a little bit of introduction here to the book of James, and then we'll get to the passage that we're going to study today. I want to ask and answer three, four questions. The first question is, who wrote the book? Well, the person that wrote the book was James. This is not James that uh, was the brother of Andrew, who was one of the 12 disciples that was called by Jesus. This is James, the Lord's brother. This is Jesus's uh, brother who was born from Mary and Joseph and was raised alongside of Jesus. Um, And so that's who this James is. The James from the Gospels um, had died sometime earlier, one of the first Christian martyrs. But this James, the James, the Lord's brother, uh, became the head of the Christian church, the Christians living in Jerusalem. Um, and so that's who this James is that we're talking about here. Um, the second question is, uh, when was it written? And this is very important, and this will come up here in a little bit, but this letter was written sometime between 45 and 46 A.D. Uh, and the reason scholars believe that is because in 47 A.D. something really important took place in the life of the church, and that is the Council of Jerusalem was convened, and James being the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem uh, was uh, in charge of that particular council. And so bishops from all across uh, the, all across that part of the world came together, convened, the, the apostles came together uh, to discuss whether or not Gentiles could enter into the church and, uh, and what was required for salvation. And so James led that, uh, that meeting, that council, and uh, there is no reference to that council in James's letter. Uh, none of the conclusions that that council came up with, that faith is by, or, or you know, salvation is by faith alone, uh, came, does James speak about any of that stuff? And so because none of those uh, items are in James's letter, scholars assume that it was written sometime just before the council in 47 A.D. Um, third is, uh, who did James write this letter to? Well, James tells us, James chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, I'm writing it, to the 12 tribes of Israel, he's referring there, the 12 tribes being the Jewish people, he says, who are scattered among the nations. And so these are Jewish people who have gone out from Jerusalem, gone out from national Israel to other parts of the Roman Empire that live abroad, live around the Mediterranean, live over in modern-day Iraq, and that sort of thing. And so James uh, is writing to these, 12, to these Jewish people, but specifically, as you continue on the letter, you recognize that these are brothers and sisters of his in Christ. So these are Jewish people who have become Christians. That's who he's writing to. And finally, why did James write the letter? Well, I already shared with you a few moments ago. The central theme of this letter is authenticity. Uh, James basically throws out there a litmus test to see whether or not you really have saving faith. And so that's what we want to spend our time talking about this morning. So um, our specific passage is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and then verse 24. I'm going to ask if you would to stand for the reading from God's Word, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Again, we stand each week out of respect for God's Word, but also as a reminder to ourselves that this is where what comes from? Truth. This is where truth comes from, that we don't have to wonder what God thinks. He wrote it down, that when our friends at work or people on the internet or on Facebook have something to say about who God is or who gets into heaven, we go back to God's word and we say, does that go with what God's word says? If not, then we go with what God's word says. God's word always has the last word. James chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 and then verse 24. Let's read together. 
What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or food, daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And then verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. You may be seated. Now that last verse that we just read perhaps shocked you. Uh, it shocked a lot of people over the course of Christendom. Um, and so we want to make sure that we get a clear understanding of what James is saying here um, and spend some time talking about that. So let me read that last verse for you one more time. Uh, James says, or at least he appears to say, that we get into heaven, that God declares us acceptable by doing good things. Let me read the verse for, it, for us. Verse 24, it says, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Well, this morning I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on. That's what's going to be required. I'm going to give you a little history lesson on the Catholic Church and Protestantism and how all that came about. So just hang with me a little bit because this verse is right at the heart of so much of what we understand as modern-day Protestantism. Um, a guy by the name of Martin Luther had a huge debate back in the 1500s with the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. In 1520 A.D., Martin Luther was serving as a Roman Catholic monk, and he was studying the Bible, particularly the writings of the Apostle Paul. Um, he became convinced, Luther did, that salvation is a free gift from God, Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, and that God gives this to people, and that the way that people qualify for this gift that God has is by placing their total reliance, their total faith, in what Jesus did on the cross, in the work that Jesus did on the cross, in the blood of the cross, plus no religious activity, no good works, nothing that we bring to the table whatsoever. And so that was his conclusion. And this idea that Martin Luther codified is the foundation of what we know today as modern-day Protestantism. That word is protestantism. He was protesting what the Catholic Church was teaching. The Catholic Church was teaching, and still teaches to this day, that we are saved by faith plus our good deeds, plus some works, plus some religious activity that we bring to the table. In other words, that what Jesus did on the cross was not good enough to save us. We have to bring some sort of human activity to the table as well. Um, but again, Luther's point was, let me repeat this because it's foundational to everything we understand in modern evangelical Protestantism, that salvation is a free gift that God gives to a person, that the way a person qualifies for this free gift is by placing their total reliance for getting to heaven in Jesus' work on the cross plus no human work, no religious activity at all whatsoever, that it is a free gift that God gives to us. We don't earn it. We don't get God to come around. It doesn't move the needle for us in our relationship with God a little bit by bringing some sort of human works, but rather that God gives us this as a free gift when we place our trust in what Jesus did on the cross plus nothing. In other words, Church attendance won't get you to heaven. Giving to the church won't move the needle. Cutting the grass at the church won't save you. Rocking babies in the nursery won't do it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away my sins. That is the song, the mantra of Martin Luther. 
The only way that God is going to forgive you of your sins, the only way that God is going to give you access into heaven, that he's going to pardon you and declare you justified, made right in his sight, give you entry into heaven, is by putting your trust in what Jesus did on the cross plus absolutely nothing. Some of the verses that convince Luther of this conclusion are Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore, Paul says, no one will be declared righteous, that is, will be made acceptable to God in God's sight by observing the law, by observing some sort of human work, some sort of religious activity. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Watch now, verse 9, not by works. Not by being a good person, not by bringing something to the table, he says, so that no one can walk around saying in heaven, I earned this. No, no, so that no one can boast. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul writes, Jesus saved us not because of good things that we had done. Jesus saved us not because of good things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He goes on to say, verse 7, so that having been justified, that is, having been made right with God, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, Luther began writing about this position and came to understand this from the Bible. And before long, his writings got passed all around Europe and it grew like wildfire. And people were hearing this and realizing the truth of what's in the scriptures. And so Luther said in one of his writings, he said, It is clear that salvation cannot be acquired by any work, law, or merit. That is, we don't earn it, and we cannot yield on this point, though heaven, earth, and everything else fall, end of quote. Well, all of this, as you can imagine, here's our history lesson coming to a close, put Luther in conflict with the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. And so what happened was the Pope at the time in 1521 excommunicated Martin Luther from the Catholic Church, said he's no longer a part of us, he doesn't believe what we believe, this guy's, you know, he's a heretic of the church, and so... Uh, it put him in, in odds with the, with the Catholic Church. And so the uh, Pope convened the Council of Trent where the Pope specifically appealed to James chapter 2 in his response to what I've just been sharing that Luther taught. And so here are the verses that the Pope quoted. And we just read them a few moments ago. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith that is, has this relationship with Jesus, but no deeds. Can such faith save him? James chapter 2 and verse 24. So you see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And finally, James chapter 2 and verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith in Christ without deeds is dead. This is Gordon. It sounds to me like the Bible has got a huge contradiction going on. Did anybody else pick up on that? I mean, it sounds like the Bible's James is saying one thing, Paul's saying something totally else all over the place. I mean, what's going on here? What am I supposed to make out of this? Well, there is no contradiction here. You say, Gordon, you sound like a politician. <laughs> James is right, and Paul is right. And here's how this works, okay? This is how we understand them both to be right. If if you read James chapter 2 and verse 24 in isolation, you take that verse, you lift it out of the, the letter that Paul writes, then, yeah, you're going to see a contradiction. Um, in fact, as I was saying earlier, 
the letter of James written before the Council of Jerusalem, so 45-46 AD, means that it preceded all of Paul's letters, which means Paul's specific language about how you're saved by faith alone had not hit the church, right? And so James, not without not being circulated out there, James is saying, uh, he's saying these things, not thinking he's contradicting Paul. It sounds like his words are contradicting Paul. But if we, if we lift this verse out of here in isolation, then we think, we think well, he does sort of sound like he's contradicting. But what you have to do is you got to read the rest of the letter. And you got to see what is the message that, that James is trying to get across. And then with, when you look at the context of what's going on in this letter, then it begins to make more sense. So let me kind of explain the context here. Let's take a look. James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? And if a person claims to know Jesus, but yet there's no evidence of that in their life, can that kind of a faith save him? That is a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, but there's no evidence that that person ever really entered into a, re- a real personal relationship with Jesus. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So he gives an example here of, hey, let me give you a for instance of how you can tell whether or not somebody is a believer, whether or not somebody has a saving faith. Verse 16, he says, if one of you says to this person who doesn't have any clothes, is without food, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, right? Kind of like, ah, I wish you the best. Uh, I know you're going to be cold tonight. I hope that works out for you. If somebody says that to a brother or sister in Christ, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Remember, James is talking to real people here. He's writing this letter to Jewish people who had become Christians who are apparently doing this. They're going right past their brothers and sisters in Christ who have nothing to wear, who have no, who they're destitute, they're, uh, they're desperate, um, and they just walk right past them and say, I wish you the best. And James is saying, there's no evidence that you've entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus. Because if you had, James says, you would have helped that person out. Um, James is saying, how can you call yourself a Christian and ignore someone in a situation like that? And then add insult to injury by telling them, I know you're destitute. I wish you the very best. You follow me? No? Okay, told you you have to have your thinking caps on today. So James is going, hey, look, where's the evidence of a real and personal relationship with Jesus? James is saying, quite literally, someone who has entered into a relationship with Jesus would never ignore. Remember, he walked alongside Jesus, and he saw the impact that a real and personal relationship with Jesus had on the people that had done that. And he says that, that a person who had entered into that relationship would never ignore the needs of a fellow Christian brother or sister like that. He's saying that the evidence of a real and personal relationship with Christ is, for example, meeting the needs of a Christian brother or sister. And he gives the example in the next chapter, and we'll get into this more next week, of some of the kinds of things that come out of your mouth. How a person who uh, is walking around gossiping, a person who's walking around lying, a person who's walking around with a potty mouth all the time, he says there's no evidence there. That's a lack of evidence to reveal, to confirm, to prove that this person has a real and personal relationship with Jesus. Because for James, uh, you can't have a real and personal relationship with Jesus and walk around lying and gossiping and all the rest. 
James says that faith that is unproven by action is not saving faith. He says, you see that a person is justified by what he does. In other words, it proves that they're justified, not just by saying, oh, I'm a Christian. The interesting thing is, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, James is spot on in agreement with the rest of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 17. This isn't James, this is Jesus now. Jesus says, every good tree, that is, who's connected to the vine, connected to him, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree that's not real, that's false, bears bad fruit. And then verse 20, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. John says, we know that we have come to know Jesus. We know that we have come to know Jesus. We know that we have come to know Jesus. Here's how, if we obey his commands. Not obeying his commands, we got to wonder. That's the question James is asking. That's the question John is asking here. That's the question Jesus is asking here. The man, verse 4, who says, oh, I know him. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But does not do what Jesus says is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So there's a litmus test in the Bible that if a person's outward life does not change, and the Bible, then the Bible Jesus himself says raises serious doubts as to whether or not that person has saving faith. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is out baptizing people in the river Jordan. And these Pharisees, these doctors of the law, these Jewish folks come along. And uh, John says to them, he says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now there's a greeting for you, right? (laughs) Anyhow, so you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, produce fruit. Let's see evidence of this changed heart, of this changed life. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, before I baptize you, I want to see your change of heart, which is why here at Hebrew Christian Church, we do not baptize people that we know are living in sin, that are deliberately unrepentant in their life. We don't invite them to the water because they have not invited a change in their life. There's no evidence that their heart has been given over to the Lord. Um, R.C. Sproul said, and I quote, um, it's not up here, yeah, it is. He says, James is saying that if a person says he has faith, but his life shows no outward fruit of obedience or good works, then this is not saving faith. And this is not saving faith. Um, R.C. Sproul also said in another quote, James is saying not that a person is justified before God by his works, but that his claim to have saving faith is proven to be genuine by the outward evidence of his works. Um, So let's summarize. Here's the point. The point is that Paul is making, that Martin Luther is making, we're looking at the root. Paul and Martin Luther were looking at the root of salvation, that salvation comes by faith alone, that we enter into a relationship with Jesus by placing our faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the work that he did on the cross, plus nothing else. Yeah, I don't bring my recycling to it. I don't bring my good works to it. I don't bring the money that I gave to the church to it. None of that saves me. What saves me is nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
So that's what Paul and Martin Luther were dealing with. The other side of that spectrum is where James is dealing. And he says, hey, look, if there's no fruit in the life of the person that says they gave their life to God, if there's no fruit in their life, there's no evidence in their life of a changed heart, of a changed life, then James says, I question whether or not they really have a real and personal relationship with Jesus. Um, mm. I mean, it's a tough book. Let's just be honest. Um, all right, so the Bible's not contradicting itself. Are we all on board? We understand James' message, Paul's message, how the two are cohesive, they're working together, but just on opposite sides of the spectrum. James is emphasizing the fruit as evidence of the faith that someone has placed in Jesus. All right, so that's our treatment of this text, and I know it's some pretty heavy stuff, and we'll revisit again, revisit this again, these concepts again over the course of the next two weeks, um, just to make sure we're all on board with what James is talking about here. Um, but that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. We ask it every week. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I appreciate the theology lesson. I appreciate the history lesson. I bet Martin Luther would probably appreciate it even more. But what does any of this have to do with me? Well, let's talk about that. Um, around 500 AD, uh, the Catholic Church, which was Christendom at the time, um, adopted a teaching of what they called indulgences. Indulgences were basically a way for a person to give money to the church or to do certain religious activities like confession or something like that or communion. And that by doing those religious activities, they could uh, reduce God's punishment for their sin. So the Catholic Church was teaching purgatory around this time. There's this holding tank that you go to. Once you've kind of done your time in purgatory, then you can go on into heaven. It comes from a verse in First Peter chapter 3, I think. Something about Noah in there. Anyway, come ask me later after I need to look at the scripture. But anyway, so they're teaching about purgatory. And so this this idea that, uh, that God, uh, that there's certain things I've got to go through here in this life because I've sinned. Or there's certain punishments that I've got to meet in purgatory before I can go on to heaven. And so the Catholic Church begins saying, hey, look, if you do confession, if you do communion, if you give money to the church, then you can purchase or dumb down the amount of punishment or penance that you're going to have to do before you go on to receive your reward. And so the Catholic Church is teaching this. Well, it got very, um, uh, it became for the Catholic Church a, from the year 500 AD until about 1500 AD when Martin Luther comes on the scene, it had become a very abusive uh, teaching within the church. And so what priests were doing was they were saying to people, hey, you know, give me some money and then we'll build this big cathedral here. And it just became a way for people to raise money, really, within the Catholic Church. And it became an abusive uh, doctrinal teaching within the Catholic Church. The Western Church in America today is selling indulgences. We are guilty in evangelical America of telling people, you're okay. Don't worry about evidence of a relationship with Jesus. We're not going to lead you to live different. We're not going to invite you to repent of sins. We're not going to teach on purity. It's okay. You're okay. Don't worry about it. Just give us a little bit of money. We'll say a prayer, throw a little holy water on you. You go on about your business. 
Hebrew Christian church, I don't ever want to be here guilty of selling indulgence. Part of the point of the church is to lead people to repentance. Morality is very much tied to how we live is very much tied to personal holiness is tied to salvation. It is evidence, as James said, that we have a real and personal relationship with the Lord. The Christian church in particular, as our tradition, has taught uh, a place a high emphasis on baptism. And I, my fear is that over the centuries that we have led people to the water and we've said, if you just go into the water, then it's all fine. You're good. No problem. You even hear people. You say, hey, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I was baptized when I was so-and-so. Friends, there's no magic in that water. We sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus will save you. Just because you went to the water because you wanted to fulfill what your grandmother really wanted to see you do doesn't mean that you have a real and personal relationship with Jesus. Just because your name is on the membership roll at a church or because you give money in an offering plate, again, none of that will save you. The only thing that will save you is the blood of Jesus. Putting your faith and your trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross plus nothing else. Plus nothing else. And so this morning, I want to challenge you to do some deep reflection. Maybe you've been in church for 50 years or more. And you came to the water. And James says, is there evidence, though, in your life of a saving faith? I sat on the bedside of a gentleman some years back ago. He had terminal illness. And we were at the hospital. And I remember walking in. He's a member of the church. had been baptized. He said, Gordon, I'm scared. I said, what you scared about? He said, I need to know that I know that I know that I'm going to be in heaven. I said, okay. How about you and I ask the Lord to forgive you, to come into your heart, to be your Lord and Savior. And so I led him in that prayer. And I'll tell you, from that moment forward, he's a changed man. Till the day he died, his heart was different, his life was different, his attitudes were different. There was evidence of a saving faith. You say, okay, Gordon, I hear what you're saying, but I know that I know that I know. There's evidence in my life that I have a saving faith. What difference does any of this make to me? Well, my hope for you this morning is that you would recognize that James invites us, he invites us to examine our hearts, to examine our lives. Paul said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, oh, no, 2 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse, nope, it's not, it's verse, Brian's got it though. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Here's what Paul says. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Because there were some people living in Corinth, if you read in chapter 5, like that were having relations, incestuous relationships, and there were people in chapter 6 that are going up to the temple of Aphrodite and then coming home and holding hands around the dinner table with their family and praying. And Paul's going, hey, well, hold on just a second. Examine yourselves, he says, to see whether or not you're in the faith. They were in the church, but were they in the faith? Test yourselves, he says. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That is, he's not in you. And so my challenge to us this morning, if you know that you know that you know, is to recognize that James invites us to do some soul searching, to do some inward reflection, to do as the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 139 and verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Most gracious Lord, some of us this morning, having heard your words of truth, are shaken, are wondering if what we have is really saving faith. Lord, that can be wrapped up in an instant by turning our faith and our trust to you, realizing this morning that there's nothing that we bring but that it's what you did for us. And by putting our trust, our total reliance on your blood shed on the cross. And so, Lord, during this time of quiet communion, we'll bow our heads. We'll invite you to be our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, for others of us that know that we know that we know, whose there's an evidence of a changed life and a changed heart, may we hear and say the words ourselves of David, search me, O God. Know my anxious thoughts. Lead me in the way everlasting. Hear our prayer this morning. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.